Okay, let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for this lovely Sabbath morning. We thank you for the rain that we've had this week that we need so much. And we pray that uh, you will be with us as we study your word, uh, as we uh, enter in a particularly uh, challenging situ- uh, section of the Bible. We pray that your spirit will guide us and direct us. And may we come away understanding more fully uh, the purpose and meaning of ritual law. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to tackle today the construction of the sanctuary, but we're going to deal with that fairly briefly. Those of you who have been in Books of Moses have heard my spiel on the sanctuary, and I, I like a simple approach that you have you have the courtyard, you have the altar of, in, of burnt offering, you have the laver of water, uh, and then you enter into the whole holy place. You have the table of showbread or the table of presents, and you have the altar of incense, and then you have the candlestick. Uh, and then you go through the curtain to the veil uh, into the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is. And the cover of the Ark is, com- is one piece, one solid piece, with the cherubim that are over it. Seemingly the guardians of the Ark of the Covenant and particularly the Ten Commandments that are in the Ark of the Covenant. So I'm, I'm just creating this picture in your minds. Um, by the way, this is a simple outline of a house and a courtyard. And, and, and it was used, uh, archaeologists have found this particular structure uh, in arche- and, uh, digging up uh, shrines and temples uh, in the ancient Near East. Uh, there's also a similar structure for Pharaoh when he's out with his armies and uh, going up against uh, enemy forces. So this is a, this is a common perception. Uh, ancient Near East God met people where they were and he spoke a language they could understand. But of course, we understand it in a more spiritual sense as reflective of heaven. And, and for that reason, I think this is a unique feature in Israel. There were cherubim in the walls. So is it that God needed more guardians? Or what, what function did those cherubim have? And it's my belief, looking at the entire Bible, is that this represents the kind of scenarios you see uh, for example, uh, when Isaiah is call, has his call in, in the temple, he sees the cherubim. And one cherubim picks up a coal off the altar and touches his lips and because he says, I'm a man of unclean lips, uh, for my eyes have seen the glory. Uh, so there's this wit, these witnesses in, in heaven who also minister to people in vision. Uh, the scenario you have in Job is uh, the, the sons of God meeting around the throne. And the Hasatan comes, uh, or I should say Hasatan comes before them. What, what are the sons of God doing there? And, and so I would like to propose to you that the sanctuary, the whole sanctuary is it kind of a, a very sandbox kind of illustration of heaven. Uh, how many of you did sandbox in, in kindergarten, Sabbath school? <laughs> so it's a, it's, a, it's a sandbox illustration of heavenly things. 
<clears throat> Hebrews calls it a shadow. How much would you know about a tree by its shadow? Would you know that it had leaves or needles, as the case may be? Uh, would you know that uh, it had bark? Would you know that it had pigment in the leaves? Uh, would you know that the leaves fell in the fall? Uh, what would you know about a tree from its shadow? Not very much. And so this is this is uh, a shadow of things in eternity and things to come. So things to come meaning things that have to do with Jesus. So uh, just reviewing, I, I'm going to run quickly through this because I want to spend more time on Leviticus. The altar of burnt offering typologically re, uh, points forward to the death of Jesus, right? The all, all uh, the laver of water represents baptism, uh, the cleansing, uh, also possibly the new birth experience. The table of presence or the bread of the presence are, represents the presence of God that attends us when we feed on his word. Jesus said, the words I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. And he was in that context talking about his flesh and his blood. Uh, so as we feed on his word, uh, we, we have his presence attends us. And then the altar of burnt, I mean the altar of incense represents prayer mingled with Christ's righteousness. What does that mean? Holy Spirit interceding on our behalf. Jesus actually, it means Jesus. But who is he interceding with? Does the Father need Jesus to intercede with him in order to love and forgive us? Jesus said, I tell you that the hour is coming when I will no longer pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you. I and the Father are one. There's, there's no difference between Jesus and the Father. The Bible really makes that quite clear. So what Jesus is doing to me is before the, the witnesses of the onlooking universe, he is editing our prayers so that they don't have a wrong impression about God from our prayers. Because you think, or, or a wrong impression about us because of our prayers, most likely about us. Because, you see, we misrepresent God by our prayers a lot, don't we? Um, give me, give me, give me, give me. Look how selfish they are down there. You know, the, uh, and, and of course, if we start praying, uh, prayers against people, uh, you know, would you please to God do something about so and so? Uh, these are the kinds of things that where, where Jesus has to edit our prayers, as it were. He has to show that we are going in the same general direction as He went when He was here on earth. It's, it's just simply for the sake of the onlooking universe and for our sake. Because while Satan is accusing us before God, and that's the real reason why Jesus is up there uh, doing this, Satan, it, Satan is also accusing us to us, <laughs> trying to get us to weaken our hold on God, trying to get us to detach from him so that he can overcome us. So Jesus offsets his charges against us to us as well as to the onlooking universe. So with that in mind, uh, 
the, then, so the altar of incense, we, we think, talk about prayer, and then the candlestick. Uh, Jesus said, I am the light of the world, but he also said, you are the light of the world. So you, you have, if you read right to left, which is the way Hebrew is read, you have Bible study, prayer, and share, which was the hallmark of Morris Venden when he was pastor here at PUC in the 70s. He was always talking about Bible study, prayer, and share, that that was the way to live the Christian life, not by sheer effort to keep the law on our own. So what would you call the first part, the courtyard? What is that about? We have the death of Christ, we have the baptism, justification, yeah. And and that's, you took books of Moses from me? Oh, you learned this from high school, yeah. So we have justification in the first, sanctification in the second, and the third, glorification. And what is glorification? Last week, we talked about God's glory and what it does. Glorification is when we can go into the intimate presence of God and see him as face to face and we don't die. So glorification is the, uh, the ultimate trajectory where we go and how we get there is through Bible study, prayer and share. Through studying his life, through by beholding we become changed. So that, that is the goal. Uh, and the most holy place is the place where we have God's throne, where we have his presence, the Shekinah, and where we have the Ten Commandments, which spell out his character in terms that anybody can understand. Any questions? We have the mic there. Uh, any questions before we go on? I'm, I'm doing this quickly because I, most of you have had this kind of thing before, either in my class or in, in high school. Uh, so this is review time. Okay, let's move on then. Now we get into the really heavy stuff. And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Leviticus 1. And uh, why don't we start reading? Christina, would you start? And with verses 1 and um, read to verse 9. The Lord summoned Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you bring an offering of livestock to the Lord, you shall bring your offering from the herd or from the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you shall offer a male without blemish. You shall bring it to the entrance of the tent or meeting for acceptance in your behalf before the Lord. You shall lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering. In that it shall be acceptable in your behalf as atonement for you. The bull shall be slaughtered before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall offer the blood, dashing the blood against all sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The burnt offering shall be flayed and cut up into its parts. The sons of the priest Aaron shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the parts with the head and the suet on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. 
but its entrails and its legs shall be washed with water. Then the priest shall turn the whole into smoke on the altar as a burnt offering, an offering by fire of pleasing odor to the Lord. Okay, this is loaded language in here. But I want to point out something to you in verse one and verses one and two. When do you all do all your versions have when or do you have if? Verse two. Verse two yes. If. You have if. If any man. So if you have the King James version, it's if. If you have a more modern version, it's when. I'm I'm reading this now as story, okay, not as law. I mean, it is law, but it's cast in a narrative setting. You notice that God doesn't say, now I want you to offer certain offerings, and these are the offerings you are to offer. He says, if you offer, when you offer. And I believe uh, two weeks ago, we discussed the, the fact that it was after the golden calf, or maybe it was last week, uh, it was after the golden calf incident that the priesthood was formed. I would like to suggest to you that it's after the golden calf incident that sacrifices are given. Especially in such elaborate form. That the elaborateness of these sacrifices is because of the golden calf incident. Um, what about in after the fall of man and Cain and Abel were doing sacrifices? Okay. What about the sacrifice of Cain and Abel? We talked about that. We assumed that God had uh, done those or, or told them to bring those offerings. Uh, that's been the traditional viewpoint. There is no text in the Bible, though, that records that. We, we get that from Ellen White. Uh, and so assuming that that's the case, it was a very simple Offering was it not? There wasn't there wasn't a, a burnt offering and a guilt offering and a sin offering and a food offering and a um, a peace offering or a well a offering of well being. There weren't all this these elaborate. And if you bring and if you're this kind of person, you bring this offering. And if you're this kind of person, you bring this offering. And if you're too poor, you bring this offering. There wasn't this elaborateness. Um, uh, there are two instances that I think of in scripture of uh, offerings. Uh, the first one's Abraham, but the second one is Job. Um, Job was not Israelite, mm-hmm. um, from, uh, Edom, Edomite, right? Mm-hmm. I believe possibly, that's, that's possibly what some think he is. And, um, he was worshiping God, um, and would offer burnt offerings for his children when they went through their cycle of festivals, assuming that they might have sinned, that he offered it on their behalf, um, to me, it, 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 it occurs to me that it's possible that it was in human nature to uh, offer sacrifices to God out of some um, 
uh, way of communion or um, something along those lines. Did we read Jeremiah 7 last week? Yeah. You remember, you remember Jeremiah 7.22? Uh, that when God, God says, when I brought them out, brought you out of the land of Egypt, I did not speak to your fathers and say to them, offer me burnt offerings. But this command I gave you, that I shall be, you shall be my people and I shall be your God. So it seems that God's preferred will is not a multiplicity of offerings. This is now his his major voice, his, the voice of his adapted will to the will of the people who are going to offer sacrifices regardless of whether God commands them to or not. And so God has to regulate this, uh, and, and he spells it out in minute detail. Interestingly enough, the Cain and Abel story, Abel offers a minka which is a, a, possibly a food offering. It's a gift. Minka means gift. It can mean actually tribute. So he offers a gift offering to God, as it were. But some scholars render that as a food offering. So anything in this that you had a question about? I'm looking at verses 3 to 9 now. No questions. All the language and everything is clear. What does it mean to press the hand or lay the hand on the head of the animal? What does that mean? To transfer your sin to the animal. That's been the traditional uh, way we've looked at it. Problem is the Bible never says that. We've, we've kind of assumed that. And, and there's, a, there's a reason for that. Um, at the end of the Day of Atonement, when all the sins are removed from the sanctuary, they're placed on the head of the goat for Azazel, and he is sent away into the wilderness to carry away those sins. And then the sanctuary is cleansed, and also the people are cleansed, according to Leviticus 16. So there's a reason to think that the people's sins get transferred into the sanctuary via the blood. Is there any other possibility for that hand-leaning uh, or pressing that you can think of. Uh, some scholars think it means ownership. I'm owning this offering, so I'm, I'm, this is my offering. I have a hard time seeing that as, as a ritual piece of, of, uh, in terms of ritual, this is for atonement purposes, this is for, um, and ultimately it's going to involve forgiveness and things like that. Owning the animal, what what does that mean? And what does that have to do with making atonement? It makes more sense to me if it is transfer. There's another possibility, though. Maybe you have it. Um, how the weight of our sin kills. Okay. Or something to... Pre- pressing the hand would suggest that. I have sinned. The weight of my sin is on this animal. Okay, that's that's very good. Uh, there's another one. It's possible that, that the offerer confessed their sin as they did that, though we have no record. And there's nothing that says that they had to confess their sin. Just they brought the animal. What is also clear 
in the in the Hebrew text is that the person who pressed their hand on the animal because of their sin did the slaughtering of the burnt offering. This is also true of the sin offering. Which means that there's a causal connection between pressing the hand on the head, letting the weight of my sin fall on this innocent animal, and I then take its life, meaning my sin has led to the loss of this animal's life. I am responsible for this animal's death. And so what what happens then when the sin is transferred into the the most into the sanctuary into the holy place of the sanctuary it's not just the sin it is the sin leading to the death of an innocent animal that is transferred into the the holy place so that we what this suggests is that it is our sins that killed Jesus. It was the weight of our sins pressing down on him that took his life. And and we'll see that as we, as we work through uh, Scripture and, and into the uh, New Testament. Now, um, verse 4, you must press your hand on the head of the entirely burned offering so that it will be acceptable for you to what? Make atonement. How many of you have make atonement in your Bible? You don't? As atonement. As atonement. Okay, but the, you have the word atonement. I'm, my version has the word reconciliation. And this now becomes the most important word in the text. But before we deal with it, reconciliation implies what? Appeasement. It does imply appeasement. It implies that there's estrangement between me and God, and God has to be reconciled to me. So now, now we need to know if this is a, an appeasement offering, then God is truly angry, and we have to read God's wrath differently than we have been as of last year. So this is a very important word. Before we go to this word, because we're going to spend considerable time on this word, I would like to go now to the last line, which is in verse 9. The priest will then completely burn all of it on the altar as an entirely burned offering, a food gift of soothing smell to the Lord. My The, the translator of my version, who I think I know who he is, um, really likes reconciliation, soothing odor, and so on. Is God soothed by the smell of the burning animal? And what do we do with that? Um, immediately, I, I think of God uh, being, uh, thinking of, of Christ, thinking of uh, in the future what that blood represented, and um, Christ's sacrifice. Um, so God is soothed by Christ's sacrifice? Um, I wouldn't say so. <laughs> <laughs> what, do we, what do we do with this? Let, let's go back. This, this will help us if we review where we've been. 
Because, again, I'm dealing with this as narrative. Where's the first time the soothing order is raised? Is it in the Cain and Abel story? Does anybody remember? Is it with Noah that we talked about? It's with Noah. It's not in Cain and Abel's story. God isn't soothed in Cain and Abel's story. It's in Noah. Noah wants to appease God, comes off the boat, wants some uh, flood insurance. And uh, so he offers all of these, all of these animals, animal after animal after animal. It's no wonder God says, I will put the terror of be animals up. Put the terror of you upon these animals. <laughs> he didn't have to put anything on those animals. They probably were terrified by the time they saw all these animals being slaughtered. And and what is God's response to Noah? Oh, that smells so good. <clears throat> I'm so soothed. I'm not going to send another flood. Is that his response? You remember what he said? Uh, let's go back to Genesis. Eight. Okay, verse 21. The Lord smelled the pleasing scent. And you could translate it soothing. The Lord smelled the pleasing scent, and the Lord thought to himself, I am soothed. Well, it sounds like it. I will not curse the fertile land anymore because of human beings. Because... You have soothed me properly with your offerings. Is that what it says? No. Because the ideas of the human mind are evil from their youth. What is What kind of pronouncement on the sacrifices of Noah is that? It sounds like God is not impressed with all the animals being slaughtered. He recognizes that, that human violence, humans can't, seem to get around violence. They have to do something violent. Uh, that's what caused the flood in the first place. And now they are trying to do violence again in order to appease God. So this is, this is not what God being soothed by this order. It's what human beings try to do for God. They try to soothe him. And so what has happened, by the time we get to Leviticus, let's go back to Leviticus now, what has happened by the time we get to Leviticus is this has become a well-worn expression, kind of like cliche. And it it may even no longer have that meaning of soothing in, in the minds of the people. And by the way, there's other ways to translate it. What do your versions have? As a pleasing odor, as a soothing smell? Pleasing odor, okay. What do you have? I have a sweet savor. Unto sweet the Lord. savor, okay. That's King James Version, yeah. And she says, an aroma pleasing to the uh, Lord. An aroma pleasing to God, yeah. Mine says pleasing as well. Okay. Sweet savor. Sweet savor, King James again. And you have the King James, so it's the same. Yeah, uh, it comes out of the ancient understanding that you burn incense to appease your gods. The Babylonians burned incense to appease their gods. Uh, why? Have you ever been around incense? A fair amount. What did it do for you? <laughs> if you get too much, it doesn't do that. 
pacify you, uh, calm you down, relax? It, it does. It kind of calms you down. It kind of gives you this kind of almost soporific feeling. And that's what they hoped to do to the gods, to calm them down if they were angry and and so on. So burning incense was a, an act of appeasement in the ancient Near East. So any soothing odor, any any soothing smell is going to have the same effect as the perception. So we're seeing here the human language coming out and the per- human perception as... If you remember, just in the beginning, you said that uh, you outlined the sanctuary and the altar of incense represented the prayers. Um, and the prayers are often as an incense before God and it's pleasing aroma. I guess we can uh, infer that that would be a pleasing aroma to God. Um, and also uh, a text that I, that I just want to throw into the equation, mm-hmm. uh, Ephesians 5, 2. Um, and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Um, so. What do you, how do you do with that? Does that mean he's appeased? Immediately I think. Soothed. I'm thinking now that it's like, um, like when we pray, what, what's going on there that, that's pleasing God? That, that, that it's like an aroma to God. Um, I don't know, it's faith. Um, you know, what is it that really pleases God? Is it, is it that we have appeased Him, or is it something else? Isn't it more our praise that appeases Him? Okay. Well, the question I have is, does God need to be appeased? See, that's that's a very pagan concept. Is the gods are angry and need to be appeased? It's it's Babylonian to the core. Now, they didn't do the same kinds of rituals that Israel did in order to gain to that end. But the hallmark of, of Babylonian worship is appeasement. It's more so in Babylon than any other culture in the ancient Near East. Though it's hard to know because we don't have enough texts from the Canaanites uh, to know exactly how to interpret their rituals. Um, it's, it's, but that doesn't seem to be, appeasement doesn't seem to be a major part of the Ugaritic text, as far as I know. But in Babylon, uh, the understanding is that your prayers, your incantations, uh, incense, burning incense, uh, feeding the gods, clothing the gods, housing the gods, all of that was supposed to keep them calm and tranquil. Because they, they would get angry, and every time you suffered a misfortune, an illness, a death in the family, anything like that, you, the gods were angry with you. It was just an automatic understanding. So instead of the word, excuse me, instead of the word appeasement, we're also told that he inhabits our prayer, our praises. And I guess that's what I was mm. trying to, that he's pleased with us in that, I mean, not that we can do anything, but he's pleased with us when we praise him. Kind of on that order. Okay. okay. Yeah, I think the real question is, what is a, what about these offerings is pleasing to God? Does he like slaughter? Does he like blood? And the blood is for cleansing, and we're going, we're going to spend some time next week on the blood. 
so I'm, I'm going to lay it aside a little bit. Blood has extensive meaning in Scripture. I, I don't know if I should tell you ahead of time or let you discover uh, what that meaning is. Uh, I think I'll not get ahead of myself, and we'll, we'll just plan on that next week. I would like to propose... Oh, that's right. Uh, wow. We get to wait until December. Okay. The next two weeks we'll be, we'll be out. But I would like to still go back to the Noah story. That is where we first see this, and it's clear to me that Noah is really doing that. He's really trying to appease God. So this this soothing smell is our perception of God coming through the text. It's the intent of the worshiper. And God is meeting them where they are, allowing that language to be there. Keep in mind, we don't believe in verbal inspiration. So the language is not, the language is human. It is not divine. And if that is the case, this is, this is our languaging what we hope to accomplish by these offerings. Now, all of this is false. Everything I've said is false. If the word atonement means appeasement. So we're going to have to work on that word and, and we're going to do that shortly. But I just, I want to reiterate that the soothing smell of these offerings is the way human beings see their offerings. And, and God is allowing that language to stand. He doesn't correct it. Because if he did, if he did, if he came down to Moses and he said, look, Moses, I don't need your appeasement because I'm not humanly angry and I'm not the kind of God that needs appeasement. I'm just not like, I'm not like human beings who want to be appeased a lot. I don't have that kind of nature. I'm not sinful. If he did that, the people would be lost. They wouldn't know where to, where to go on that. They wouldn't know what to, how to function, and they would probably stop bringing offerings. Well, and they would then probably be more likely to worship other deities who demanded offerings because this is their culture. This is this is how they see things. So, let's go now to atonement. The word atonement, and as I said, my version has reconciliation, which can open the door for appeasement very easily. The word. For atonement is in Hebrew is Kippur. Yom Kippur, you've heard of Yom Kippur. That's the Day of Atonement. Okay, so Kippur is is the word for atonement. We're going to use look at that word as it's first used in the Bible. Uh, look at Genesis thirty-two. Well, you actually have it here in your notes. Uh, before we get to those notes, I've, I've skipped over the grain offering, offerings of well-being, sin offering, guilt offering, because they're all very similar. Okay? In terms of what you do in the ritual, it's all very similar. So let's look at the notes here under Leviticus 1.4. The word for atonement is kipper, lakopper. That simply is infinitive form. Scholars have wrestled with this word, is it built on the Arabic root kafar, to cover, or is it related to the D form of the Akkadian cognate kupuru, to wipe away, rub off, hence by its extended meaning, to cleanse? 
And most scholars lean toward the latter and view the atonement either as propitiatory or expiatory. What is what is propitiatory? Propitiation? Continual substitute? No. To propitiate is to appease. What does expiate? Anybody know what expiate means? To cleanse. It seems to have that connotation. It's it's to remove an obstacle that lies between a person and another person, but it, it suggests something almost mechanistic about that. In other words, if I sin, uh, I set a chain of, of, of consequences that are, are going to be very lethal to, to my society, to my to people around me, and to myself. Uh, by offering by offering the sacrifice, I therefore remove that obstacle. That obstacle is, is taken care of. And then those effects can be dealt with uh, in, a, in a more appropriate manner. So, so that's expiate. You can see that propitiate is personal. Someone's angry at me, and I appease them. Okay, it's personal. Expiate involves something more impersonal, more like natural cause and effect. Though the ancient mind wouldn't understand quite that way the way we do. In the verse there that you pointed out with the word appease, Genesis 32, verse 20, uh, where Jacob is sending uh, gifts to his brother before he meets him, um, and he says that, for he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. So in my mind, I'm thinking, okay, he's sending these gifts. Esau's going to be like, oh, all right, all right, well, you know, okay, I'll take this gift, whatever. And then I'm still angry. Keep going. Oh, another gift. Oh, well, okay, you know. Kept getting more gifts until finally like, ah, whatever, I won't, you know, it's okay, we're all right. Um, what you did to me back, you know, many years ago, it's okay. That, that's my mind, uh, my thought of appeasement. Mm-hmm. But with God, like when we offer sacrifices, um, I don't think God's like, okay, the sin that you did. It doesn't matter now yeah. because you've, 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 you, you've <laughs> yeah. offered the offering. I think it's like his law demands some sort of like he can't he can't be appeased is it, he can't be appeased well if if we look at the sacrificial system as it is done you lay press the hand your hand on the animal saying my sin is falling on this animal and it is going to take its life and i slaughter that animal I'm not dealing with angering God. I'm dealing with sin leads to death. That's what the offering is supposed to indicate. Now, I need to qualify this. The Septuagint translation of the, of the Masoretic text, or the, I shouldn't say Masoretic text, the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew manuscripts, uh, uses, they shall slaughter. And, and the reason I think they do that, and they do it consistently, everywhere in the Hebrew text it says, "You shall, or uh, the the sinner shall slaughter the animal." Everywhere it says that, it says they shall slaughter. And I think the reason they do that is because if you have a full-grown sheep or a bull, one person can't slaughter that animal. You know, you have to have help 
And so they uh, becomes the practical uh, fact of the text. But this, but if you'd use the Masoretic text, the Hebrew, the Hebrew Bible, but they should, what the sinner should be the one holding the knife. Maybe the others hold the animal, but he should be the one holding the knife and doing actual killing to show that it is sin that leads to death. If that is the case, the issue is not God's anger. It is that sin leads to death. And we have to deal with sin or we all die. It's that simple. Well, you jumped ahead, Robert, but that's okay. Let's look at... A careful study shows that Kipper does not in Leviticus refer to propitiation. Uh, two examples of where kafar means, does mean to propitiate are Genesis 32, 20 and 21 where Jacob sends multiple gifts to his brother Esau with the thought, maybe I can wipe the anger off his face with the gift that goes before my face so that afterwards I may see his face and perhaps he will lift up my face. This is just common understanding in the ancient Near East. If someone is angry, like the king is angry with you, you bring him a gift. Now, does I want to ask you, did Jacob's gifts to Esau appease him? Think it through carefully. Does he send all the 400 men home and say, okay, I'll go just meet uh, Jacob? No. He still comes toward Jacob. What is it that finally stops Esau from his anger that he wants to kill his brother? God, uh, um, a dream? or Yeah, God, God talked to him. And more than that, Patriarchs and Prophets suggests that It was that dislocated hip that he hobbled toward his brother. His brother was no bully. He would not take on his brother as weakened as he was. And so that weakened hip brought sympathy and a tenderness to Esau. Esau was willing to forgive him then. So it wasn't the gifts that appeased him. So the other place is Proverbs 16:14. The king's wrath is a messenger of death, and the wise person will wipe it off. Do you remember from last year, those of you who are in this group last year, if, if you remember last year when they, when we talked about the the correlation between kingly anger and divine anger. That the more time that where kings were more angry, their anger was heightened. They were into conquest and they were into making sure that the people that they conquered kept loyal to them. And if they broke any loyalty, they'd go out and punish them. Uh, where kings are in that mode of anger, gods are also more angry. You can, you can correlate it historically with texts. Uh, I'm talking about Mesopotamian texts. Well, this text, to me, is very key. It's it's a key text. Uh, the king's wrath is a messenger of death, and the wise person will wipe it off, meaning they will appease it. Uh, and most of your versions will have appeasement. So, there is a tie then, and, and where human beings understood 
they had to appease the gods came out of their own family relationships and relationships social, socially and politi- politically with kings and with officers of the king and so on. It, um, it came to be seen that you have to appease whoever's angry. And so the gods are angry, so we have to appease them. That's where it comes from. Uh, it also probably comes from possibly in some cultures anyway, uh, comes out of ancestor worship. So in both cases, the PL form of the verb is used, that's the intensive form or iterative form, uh, where, where it, the action is stronger and it's more continuous. However, in Leviticus, no direct object. God is never the object of the verb kafar. I would like you to change that. Instead of no direct object ever follows. That is true. But that's not what makes the case. Um, I'm on page two. No direct object ever follows the verb kafar. Put right in between uh, God is never the object or God's wrath is never the object of the verb kafar. Where it clearly does in the two examples cited above. You have a direct object that Esau, I mean, Jacob hopes to wipe off the face, the anger off his face. Um, he hopes to appease his anger, Esau's anger, and you appease the wrath of the king. Okay, there's a direct object there of wrath of the king and and Esau's face. You don't have that kind of object. You don't have a direct object. What you have is the word, the, a prepositional object on behalf of sin or for the sake of sin. I make atonement for sin. Sin is the emphasis, not God. And that has led Yitzchak Fader in his book, Blood Expiation, Hittite and Biblical Ritual and Meaning, this book that I have right here has carefully explored the concept of atonement in Hittite and Israelite traditions. Going further, he has explored what happened to these concepts in the Septuagint and the Vulgate translations. What it follows are excerpts and recapitulations of his work. And and since we're starting that, I think we better close with that. Uh, but he, what he does, uh, just to give you an encapsulation, is to propose that because that the the Ancient Hebrew writers deliberately constructed the sentence awkwardly, syntactically. They, they butchered syntax in order to convey that this is not appeasement, but this is to deal with sin. Focus of atonement is sin, not God. Uh, you'll, you will get the clearer, uh, hit, we'll get his clearer, uh, statements here. Uh, next time, and and we'll reiterate this uh, as we move on. Okay, it's time to close. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you that you carefully guided the writers of the Hebrew Bible to make things clear to us that it is sin that causes death, And it is sin that must be dealt with by the atonement. 
pray that this will become clearer and that we will shift away from thinking of you as one who has to be soothed, calmed down, appeased, to believing that your estranged children need to have the barrier removed, the sins removed, so that they can come into your presence. We understand this to be the natural result of sin, that we cannot see you face to face. And we long to have that changed. Thank you for providing the way to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. This 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 name.